Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, an expert on pen names indulges my curiosities. When a novel takes so long to write and it's it's incredibly difficult, I think no matter how successful you are, why wouldn't you want the credit for it? Plus, what's the deal with all these shows with queer protagonists getting canceled? I've been watching shows about straight people my whole life. I don't really understand why they wouldn't also want to see ours. But first, it's our chance to sit back, relax, and unwind from another weird week. And here to help us do that are the hosts of the NPR show Invisibilia, Yoe Shaw and Kia Miyakinatis. Yoe, Kia, hello. Hi. Hi. So I think we should start with this asteroid situation. This week, NASA was successfully able to nudge an asteroid with a spacecraft. They sent it up almost a year ago. It made contact on Monday night. It's essentially a test of our ability to save Earth from a potential future asteroid collision, which does seem like a pretty good use of our time. I don't know, though. I kind of feel like on the laundry list of things that I'm stressed out about on a daily basis, like asteroid isn't. I don't know. Maybe it's on the top hundred. Like, is this a thing that you were worried about, Kia? No, not at all. Like when I heard about this story, my first thought was like the butterfly effect. And like, what are you all setting off course in the next million years? Like, don't interfere with the asteroids. That's asteroid business. Um, So I was actually very concerned. That was like my first thought was like, well, what if it hits another asteroid? And now you all have just set us up to get hit by that. Like, it's just... I immediately was like, that's a bad idea. Wow. I love the panic spiral. (laughs) That, I mean, you're, that makes sense. I could see how you would go there. What do you think, Yoe? Well, first of all, hats off to all the scientists who were able to make this happen. But Mm. like, I don't know. I just found myself so fascinated by NASA's messaging around the whole endeavor. Oh my God, that the video. video. Like, it feels like a movie trailer. Like yes. the deep voice of the narr- narrator. Like, in a galaxy. In a galaxy where asteroids have pummeled planets for billions of years. Now, one planet strikes back. For the first time in our planet's history, NASA will test an asteroid deflection technique. It's the first planetary defense method of its kind. Yes, and it feels like, you know, NASA is trying to do the thing that, like, governments do, which is, you know, create propaganda. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, simple, feel-good, hero-villain stories. Um, Mm -hmm. But, like, instead of making me feel revved up about, like, our country's amazing, like, scientific uh, skills, it just, like, made me feel more hopeless, You know, Mm. like I'm with you with you, Greta, on just 
like on the laundry list of things out there that we should be spending yeah. a lot of time and there's money. There's a lot of stuff. Yes, yeah. there's so much stuff. And it just like my my main reaction was just like if we can figure out how to deflect an asteroid, like why can't we get our act together to face the planetary disaster mm. that we know will happen if we don't act like yesterday mm. i mean there is this weird line between like it feels like a movie mm. like the whole trailer for mm-hmm. the the event that was happening and then watching it and like just getting closer and closer to the rock and then be like i guess we hit it yeah you know cool. <laughs> right well, and like there there are two movies that are very easy to compare the situation to one is mm. armageddon which came out right. when i was like 14 or 15 mm-hmm. and i was mm-hmm. obsessed with it i cried my eyeballs out seeing that in the theater mm. and then of course don't look up yeah. more recently which Woof. you yeah. know i mean yeah. there is the version that's like okay well at least now bruce willis doesn't have to die and we're not quite as terrible i mean don't look up pretty much everyone does die at the end that is a spoiler alert, <laughs> right you know? right I respect Don't Look Up for just being like, listen, the reality of who we are mm. is that we're not going to listen and that might spell a faded ending. So I but I do appreciate that someone's like problem solving, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I guess if I was deep in the weeds of like asteroid um, news, maybe <laughs> that would feel more relevant. But because it is like you both are saying, like, there's a lot happening and yeah. I'm happy for you all. But also... I don't know if that's the best use of our money. <laughs> yeah, if we, could, if we could see such a collective brain power group effort around things like climate change or health care, yeah. you know, that would, yeah, that could be, that could have huge impact tomorrow. Yeah. But also maybe they've already saved our lives by like blocking an asteroid before and they're like, you have no idea. Well, there was probably, yes, there was like a whole bunch of conspiracy tweets out there about like what are Mm. like, obviously they know about the asteroid coming in a month that they will reveal (laughs) presently, very shortly. You know, well, and like from a PR point of view, I could totally see being like, (laughs) let's nudge the asteroid moonlit and then tell everyone about the asteroid heading The media rollout. For this asteroid, <laughs> love to be in those meetings. What about this trailer music for the asteroid? No, 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 that's not it. You know, it's like, oh man, that's more bass, scary more bass. but true. <laughs> right? His voice isn't deep enough. Oh my god! So another story from this week, also kind of speaking of propaganda, is that the Central Intelligence Agency is celebrating its 75th birthday, and they redid their museum, which apparently is not open to the public, which I guess is extremely on brand for the CIA, (laughs) but I think is hilarious. Well, and then the fact, speaking of propaganda, that they also have launched a podcast, which feels extremely antithetical to the idea of the CIA. But we did pull a clip of it and we are going to listen to part of it right now. A lot, after all, has been broadcast about the Central Intelligence Agency, but no one classified podcast has ever been produced by the Central Intelligence Agency until now. And, you know, we're going to do our best to bring you unique stories and insights into what this agency is all about. And we know many of you might be wondering, why is CIA unveiling a podcast? Isn't the whole point to be secret? Didn't you guys invent neither confirm nor deny? And I can confirm that, yes, we did invent that thing. (laughs) First of all. (laughs) Oh, my God. It sounds like... (laughs) 
their podcast voices are on point. I have to say, <laughs> as know, someone right? who's a fan of like murders in the building, <laughs> um, like they have that exact tonality where I'm like, <gasps> oh my god, it's perfect. That script too. I have to say, I kind of love it. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. Like I thought that the CIA's podcast might be kind of bad. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it's like pretty serviceable. I saw that like the hosts of the podcast, they only go by their first names too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which just like is perfect. It like ups the intrigue. Oh my God. Yep. There is such an exquisite inherent irony to the Central Intelligence Agency coming up with like you know we should make a podcast like we should really reach out you know i think it's hilarious and bizarre well that's when you know podcasting is officially dead like it's officially (laughs) oversaturated when the cia (laughs) is making a branded podcast this is making me feel feelings about our 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 Mm. medium (laughs) yeah i mean yeah i'm glad we're having this conversation on a podcast it feels (laughs) (laughs) i don't know though i think partly why i love this so much is just the Obviously, this is not the first like branded podcast to exist. I think about, you know, several years ago now when I first learned that Trader Joe's had a podcast, Mm. which is just Mm. like, oh, okay, this is obviously what the world needs. Um, But it got me wondering, like, if y'all had any ideas for what the most ridiculous branded podcast would be. Mm. Well, first of all, I refuse to believe that anybody listens to branded podcasts. Like, (laughs) I, I want to see the hard data to change my mind about that so like my fantasy branded podcast is like i want a podcast producer to go undercover taking a gig making a branded podcast for like an impenetrable (laughs) company like amazon and then eventually drop the investigative podcast from all the scoops they get like that would be so delicious to me and like I feel possibly like solve the problem of branded podcasts in general. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that would explode the industry. <laughs> yeah, and it would make companies right. like trust. too scared to make them anymore. And then there we go. No more branded podcasts. Oh, my God. That's so yeah. funny. Kia, what do you think? I don't know. It's like all the joke ones I come up with. I'm like, oh, no, that would make good content. I was like, you know, like tampons. And then it's like, oh, no, we could just talk about bodies and menstruation. Why haven't well, they done like that? That probably also you know? exists already. Right. Yeah. You right. Know? It's just like I'm not I'm not scanning the QR codes on my tampon box that are like, <laughs> listen to this podcast, you know, which is only a matter of time. I'm sure. That's amazing. So another story that this one made me feel really old and like underachievy. This is about a 10 year old named Andres Valencia. He's a fifth grader and he's also a surrealist painter who's doing very well for himself. This summer he had a solo art show at a gallery in Soho. He had more than 30 pieces there. He sold them all and the prices ranged between 50 and $125,000 for each of these paintings. And part of me is like, this is awesome. Like, good for him. I'm glad he's doing his thing. Uh, I also, you know, like capitalism, etc. But what I would really like to know from each of you, I would like this to be the conversation starter for what each of you were up to when you were in fifth grade. Hmm. I'm like trying to think back. I'm like, well, she was ambitious for sure. That fifth grader. I believe it. Also, I mean... 
this is rough to say, but I'm going to stand behind it. That's a rough age for kids. You know, like, yeah. so I'm going to go on a limb and say that I was also probably kind of annoying. Mm, <laughs> you know, like, wow. you're trying on personalities, but you are. Mm, you're like trying totally. on personalities. You see something on TV and you're like, I'm going to try to be that person today. You know, yeah. and then you try it and you're like, oh, people don't like it. All right, I'm going to try a new personality. You know, like, it's just a very, um, I say this to say for the kid, like, if you ever want to change your job, because mm. that's a lot of pressure so yes. much to be pressure. that age, yes. earning that type of money and getting that type of attention and it's like if you turn 13 and you decide you want to be a pro skateboarder yeah yeah, like i hope you have the freedom i know well it's hard even when you're 30 and you start getting paid for the thing that's creatively rewarding like to navigate all that when you're 10 sounds impossibly hard that is a lot of pressure and i really appreciate you kia bringing us to the level of honesty about like who we are who we were like at 10 because like i definitely was annoying (laughs) my main memory is i had just moved to houston texas from pittsburgh and i was Mm -hmm. getting my mind blown that i didn't have to ride a horse to school and like like that is let's just say like i was not on the same level as 10 year old andres over here oh my god that's amazing i think about her a lot like fifth grade me and be like would she be cool with this is she yes. okay you know yes. i'm like i think do she you really cute i do because I-, I love that and why fifth grade versus other grades you know like when you're that age you have a strong at least i did had a strong idea of like what adulthood would be like mm. um and a lot mm-hmm. of like when i get old when i grow up blah 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 and yeah. now to be that person be like did i live up to my own expectations and i think it's okay to be like you had unreasonable well, expectations yeah, for because sure. you were 10 also <laughs> you adulthood know? is complicated and shit happens <laughs> obviously <Right. laughs> yeah but it, it is nice to be like to honor some of those like weird yeah. parts of like oh no i still do That's that sweet. i still like those things yeah. it is yeah. sweet well, Kia, Yoey, thank you both so much. This was very fun. Thank you for having us. This was a lot of fun. Yes, so much fun. Over the past couple months, I have come across several books with authors who are using pseudonyms. One of them is the romance novel Corinne, which is about a woman who's scorned by her evangelical family. It's written by Rebecca Morrow, but her author bio says that's a pseudonym for a New York Times bestselling author, and that is all we know. But of course, Rebecca, whoever she is, isn't the first person to use a pseudonym. Some of the most revered writers in history used them. Charlotte Bronte was Currer Bell. Lewis Carroll is a pseudonym. That dude's real name was Charles Dodgson. Same for George Eliot. That was really Marianne Evans. Here to tell us more about this extremely mysterious literary history is Carmela Chiraru. She's the author of the 2011 book Gnome de Plume, The Secret History of Pseudonyms, and she is with us now. Carmela, hi. Hello. So what are some of the reasons that someone might use a pseudonym? You know, some people had secrets to keep, whether it was about their sexuality or, you know, in the case of George Orwell, he was ashamed of his upper class background and wanted to be, you know, writing about uh, poor and working class people. Um, You know, it can be a way of protecting family and friends or a way of speaking the truth and not feeling comfortable doing that under your own name. You know, having a secret name is very liberating, as you can imagine. And, um, you know, and and sometimes it's been because someone wants to take a stab at a different genre, whether it's highbrow or lowbrow, but they, they don't, you know, they're scared to take that risk under their own name. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't realize Agatha Christie did that with romance novels, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's so cool. So why not just be anonymous, though? Like, it's interesting because I feel like there's still some desire to be recognized, even if it's not exactly as who you really are. You know what I mean? I know. That's such an interesting thing to say. I mean, that is the question is why not be anonymous? But to me, the, the question is, you know, why when a novel takes so long to write and it's it's incredibly difficult, I think no matter how successful you are, why wouldn't you want the credit for it? You know, and yeah. and I also think it's interesting, you know, why why are we so fascinated by who people are? Why does it even matter? Yeah, that brings up a lot of different questions that I definitely want to ask you about. But when it comes to people who use pseudonyms historically, do you know of any instances where people were like, quote unquote, outed in their lifetimes? I'm curious how that went. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's gone a number of ways. And unfortunately for some of the authors in my book, it ended in suicide for the author. Mm. You know, it was just a very painful uh, thing to, to be revealed. But, um, you know, I, I think for some people, it was a real um, that other person that they inhabited to for their creative selves, it it really did exist for them. And so they weren't able to write under their own names. I'm thinking of Alice Sheldon, you know, who wrote as James Tiptree, the science fiction writer. Hmm. And she felt she had a male self. And when she was discovered, she really could not function and could not write. Uh, She tried and she couldn't do it. The consequences for those people were very real. Either they, you know, they couldn't keep writing or they couldn't even keep going. Hmm. That's devastating. Do you think using a pseudonym was more popular historically because so many different ways of life were considered more taboo? I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. And as you know, you know, women writing was not an appropriate thing for them to do. Or if they did write, they had to write, you know, what George Eliot thought of as women's fiction. She didn't want to write that. She wanted to write really big, ambitious novels that that were thought of as quote unquote male. And now I think with the internet and social media, it's to me, this is just my take, but I think there's much less at stake and it seems more like a branding exercise a lot of the time to me. Hmm. So yeah, I have a couple of modern examples I'd be curious to run by you. One of them is uh, Robert Galbraith, who is the name that J.K. Rowling is using for her murder mystery series. Obviously, speaking of brands, like she is just a very complicated person these days in terms of kind of consistently doubling down on her own transphobia. But even more recently than that, there was a book earlier this year called Ordinary Monsters that came out by someone named J.M. Miro. It was a little mysterious at first, but now it's pretty obvious this is the author, Stephen Price. What are some other noteworthy modern pseudonyms that are on your radar? I think it's really interesting, you know, J.K. Rowling being sort of, you know, the most one of the most famous authors in the world and mm-hmm. and wanting to... Um, Right, you know, in this other genre and either, I suppose, not be mocked or not alienate her existing fans or, you know, it's also a way of, I think, protecting yourself from the critics, right? Because if someone doesn't know who you are, they're not going to attack you for trying something completely different. Like, I didn't know that Sophie Kinsella, who wrote the Shopaholic books that were bestsellers, you know, she writes mm-hmm. under her own name as well now. And um, and then, of course, Elena Ferrante, you know, is the big one. Yes. I find the Elena Ferrante example to be really fascinating. Of course, she's the Italian author of the Neapolitan Quartet. 
there are some really strong theories about who she may be, but none of them have been confirmed. It's I'm so conflicted about this. And even, you know, I mentioned that book Corinne at the top, which is another one where like I thought it was a good enough book that I would like to know who wrote it just from the point of view of being able to read the other things. I also, you know, as a journalist, am fascinated by a good story and a mystery and would love to uncover this. But I don't know, like what, you know, you talked about how devastating it could be for for other writers to be kind of outed with their real identities. What do you think is lost or gained in the modern times when someone someone's pseudonym becomes, you know, when their real name becomes revealed? Yeah, you know, I think it depends on the context. I mean, you know, one could say that, you know, what what's the harm now in writing a book that deals with homosexual desire? And but for some people, depending on where you live and your religious background and your family, that's still something that is terrifying to contemplate and and not a possibility. And so I think that's a very real situation where something's at stake. And then I think for um, you know, for JK Rowling you know, nothing could hurt her financially at this point. And even the criticism um, about her, her personal views, it can't really hurt her, right? It's not going to, she's not going to sell fewer books. But I think for someone like Ferrante, uh, there does seem to be something that's deeply personal and painful in, um, in her need to protect herself. And, Mm. and so I, I, I respect it because she's not, sort of being coy and, and, you know, hoping that she's uncovered. Like she, this person has talked in, in a number of interviews about her need to remain private. And so um, I think, you know, sometimes it's worth asking at what cost do we keep digging and, and not respect this person's wishes. Yeah. Well, and that's what I've heard about this book, Corinne, which I mentioned is about evangelicals and I mean it's also Mm. extremely horny I have to say it's like a very (laughs) sexy book Um, and I don't know it's interesting someone actually a friend of mine sent me a reddit link theorizing that maybe it was written by Stephanie Meyer who you know is the author of the Twilight series Um, but I think you know generally the idea being that probably this is a person who grew up in an extremely religious family and is afraid of alienating them by kind of uncovering some some of the, you know, by even just discussing the rigidity of that culture. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't know that Sylvia Plath wrote The Bell Jar as Victoria Lucas, and and it remains so until she committed suicide, because as much as she, as she hated and resented her mother and found her suffocating. She also wanted to protect her. You know, the, the, the character is quite brutal about her relationship with her mother in the novel. You know, also if there are plenty of examples, contemporary authors who um, have, have written erotica, but it's, you know, wildly different than what they usually write. And they, their families could never find out about that because they might cut off contact. Right. So, I'm curious in this time of call it cancel culture, call it accountability culture, you know, as someone who has studied all of these different people throughout history who really did want to, for whatever reason, kind of codify that uh, distinction between who they are in the world and some of the books that they wrote. Do you think there's too much connection these days between you know, who a person is and how they behave and also what they write about? Like, do you think there is an advantage to that delineation? 
Oh, wow. What a, that's such a huge and fascinating question. Speaking broadly, I think, yes, there is a bit too much connection these days and it doesn't serve the artists and it doesn't necessarily serve the, the audience. Um, I think there is a benefit to compartmentalizing, you know, what you put into the books and, and your personal life. But on mm -hmm. the other hand, I would argue it really depends on the context because we can't just except, you know, some people who behave monstrously and just say, well, the book is the book. I think, you know, sometimes lines need to be drawn. But um, in terms of, you know, trying to connect relentlessly with authors or artists we admire and not giving them the space that they that they are entitled to in their personal mm -hmm. life, you know, that's where I think lines get crossed with social media. And I, I understand why some artists and writers don't do social media because they do want to, you know, set up boundaries. Um, so I think it's a very difficult question. I mean, I think for me personally, I, um, if I love a book, I do want to know about the author to a point, but, um, and if you find out sort of disturbing biographical information, what do you do with that? I, I think for me personally, I'm still inclined to want to read the book and critique the book and be aware of of, of the knowledge that I, I have in, in sort of um, thinking about how the author approaches characters or certain situations um, and, and, and then, you know, judge it from there. I'm just interested in the psychology of it, but I wouldn't necessarily not read a book for that reason. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's, I don't know, I think J.K. Rowling is a really interesting person even to wrestle with where, you know, I mean, I loved Harry Potter. I have a Deathly Hallows tattoo. But, you know, <laughs> the things that she has said against such a vulnerable population makes me really uncomfortable. And I'm not in a position where I'm willing to support her work anymore, you know, but that I do, I, I think it has to be a personal choice. Yeah, I know. It's like, what do you do with that? And I think that it's great to talk about it and to have conversations and then to think about, you know, do we support her work? Do we not? Can we still hold dear the books that she gave us, you know, mm -hmm. that we loved? You know, it's it it certainly does complicate your feelings. And I, I write about that a bit in my new book, Lives of the Wives, um, which explores five literary marriages. And, you know, it sort of debunks the notion of the lone genius in <laughs> in writing and how the wives contributed to those works. And, you know, Roald Dahl, you know, he was a monster in his mm -hmm. marriage. And it's really hard to have, to know what I now know more deeply, I, I was aware of before. But now when I went back and read his children's books, I, I find so much misogyny and violence and bitterness and, you know, rage. There's all these things in his books that, uh, you know, it's it's sort of hard for me to take now knowing how, how he behaved in his personal life. But maybe some people would say that's none of my business. I don't I don't know what to what to do with it. Yeah, I think you're right. It's super complicated. But at the very least, we should definitely be talking about it. Carmela, thank you for engaging in such a thought-provoking conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. In just a minute, NerdUp producer Anna Bauman commiserates with the CEO of Autostraddle about why so many shows with queer lady protagonists are getting canceled after only one season. Nerd. 
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Earlier this month, Amazon Prime announced it will not pick up the sci-fi series Paper Girls for a second season. A month before that, Netflix canceled the teen vampire show First Kill, also after just one season. HBO Max's Gentleman Jack, Amazon's The Wilds, Peacock's Queer as Folk reboot, they have all received early cancellations, and all of them feature main characters who are queer women or girls. It's a pattern among TV series with major LGBTQ characters, not all of them women. Now, there are more shows about queer people than ever before. Oh, yeah, that's objectively correct. I maintain a database of all of the queer shows that exist. That is Reese Bernard. She is a writer and the founder and CEO of the LGBTQ plus digital publication Autostraddle. I keep track of every LGBTQ inclusive show that has any like queer women um, and or trans characters in it. Every queer actor. I think since around 2017, it's been increasing super, super rapidly. But it's still it's hard when shows that are like really about us front and center get canceled. I talked with Reese to learn more about how the TV landscape is and is not changing, and also to commiserate about Paper Girls. I just really fucking like Paper Girls. I really, really liked Paper Girls. (laughs) And also the queer story had barely even started. Right. One of the reasons I particularly wanted to talk to you is because of your recaps of the L word, um, Mm -hmm. which was such a, you know, first for TV. (laughs) Uh-huh. Um, and like, can you talk a little bit about how meaningful that show was for you when it first came out? It, it feels weird to, to call something that was like a bunch of thin white lesbians in Los Angeles who had a lot of money <laughs> radical. Um, but at the time it felt that way. It was unlike anything I had seen on television. It was honestly incredibly rare to see a show that was just about a group of women who weren't always talking about men, mm-hmm. um, or ever talking about men. And the L word basically asserted that like the, the soapy drama of lesbian relationships was just as worthy of a platform as the, as straight ones were like, it was really the first time I saw a show that I was like, Oh, this is what my life could be like. Mm-hmm. And was it bad a lot of the time? Yeah. It was a less woke time, but it was still <laughs> really <Yeah>. important. <laughs> it's incredibly problematic on many levels, <laughs> but I don't know. It just really, it changed my conception of what my life could look like. And I think it did that for a lot of people. And it also like inspired sort of a common meeting point for everybody to be online, for queer women to be talking to each other about these stories and these characters and to find something to identify with. I mean, that just like makes it so clear how much significance these shows do have in people's lives. And it's more than just like a trashy vampire <laughs> show being canceled. It it, yeah. it's, it makes a big difference for people. Yeah, it really does. I've been watching shows about straight people my whole life. 
I even I even love many of these programs about straight people and their relationships. So I don't re- <laughs> I don't really understand why they wouldn't also want to see ours. And it's just nice to have our stories centered. Um, and it's been great to see that happening more and more. With First Kill in particular, um, you know, it came out this summer and it was doing seemingly very well. It was in the top five globally and domestically on Netflix for like at least the first three weeks that it was out. Um, does it feel like there's a disconnect between, you know, what we perceive the numbers to be and these decisions that are being made by the streaming services? You know, Netflix doesn't share a lot of its data, so we don't always know what goes into these decisions. So I think to see that show like on the top 10 for a few weeks and then hear that it wasn't popular enough to get renewed is, yeah, I mean, it's confusing. It feels like a disconnect. But a lot of shows, period, don't see really long runs, especially Netflix seems to love, really love the like the two season scenario. Mm hmm. At this point, do you feel hopeful or do you do you think we should expect more cancellations? Even though the amount of queer shows getting made has been increasing a lot, I do feel like most of them end up getting the axe after two, maybe maximum three seasons. So I don't feel particularly hopeful about queer shows getting time to tell their stories over multiple seasons and breathe and have the prized opportunity to have a terrible season six as so many mm-hmm. long running shows do. You know, we all have trust issues, I think, as a community <laughs> with a lot of stuff ranging from our romantic relationships to loving a TV show. Like, I think we all are a little bit wary to get attached because we know that it most likely is going to be short lived. And I think that's too bad because I think we're really interesting. Well, Reese, thank you so much for talking to me about this. Of course. My pleasure. that's it for today thanks as always for listening along in case you missed the memo our october book club selection is celeste ing's our missing hearts it is fabulous check out the spoiler free author interview with her the first tuesday of the month then come back for the panel chat on the last tuesday and of course in the meantime we would love to know what you think of the book read it then record your thoughts on your smartphone and then email the voice memo file to nerdappodcast at gmail.com. Maggie Civet builds our weekly newsletter. You can sign up for that at wbez.org slash nerdattaf. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. And we all hope you have a fabulous weekend. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.